0: This is a recording of Book of Abraham Polemics, Dan Vogel's broad critique of the defense of the Book of Abraham, by Jeff Lindsay, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Jeff Lindsay. Review of Dan Vogel, Book of Abraham Apologetics, a review and critique, published in Salt Lake City, Utah, by Signature Books, 2021. 250 pages, $18.95, softback. Abstract. Dan Vogel's latest book claims to offer clear-cut evidence showing what, when, and how Joseph Smith fraudulently translated the Book of Abraham. While he claims to use an objective approach, he instead weaves a polemical agenda that ignores some of the most important scholarship in favor of the Book of Abraham. He ignores crucial evidence and relies on assumptions and hypotheses as if they were established facts. The arguments of apologists, which he claims to be reviewing and critiquing, are often overlooked or, when treated, attacked without letting, re- without letting readers know the substance of the apologetic argument. He neglects key arguments and important documents that don't fit his theory. The work is a valuable tool to explore Book of Abraham polemics, but is not even handed scholarship by it, by any means. Vogel's latest contribution does not overturn the evidence against his paradigm nor overthrow the growing body of insights into the antiquity of the Book of Abraham. The Book of Abraham is viewed by some critics of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the weak underbelly of the faith, an easy target to attack, to undermine the beliefs of members and the interest of investigators. Dan Vogel, a long-time critic of the Book of Abraham, who has influenced many people with his theories and arguments, including some members of the Church, has published a new book aimed at exploding the defenses that Latter-day Saint scholars have offered for the Book of Abraham. Drawing upon arguments honed over many years, Book of Abraham Apologetics, a review and critique, seeks to set the record straight by examining the arguments made by apologists and showing us what the evidence actually reveals. After reviewing his claim to be just pursuing history, quote, based entirely on a dispassionate, balanced analysis of the relevant historical documents, end quote, uh, I expected what would at least seem to be an even-handed consideration of key evidence on both sides of the debate, including discussion of important apologetic works and arguments. In spite of knowing what the conclusions would be, the journey would be valuable for students of the book of Abraham to understand the weaknesses in evidences and arguments. Vogel's book can indeed be valuable for that purpose, but only for a small fraction of the issues surrounding the book of Abraham. What is neglected, unfortunately, contradicts the claim of dispassionate scholarship. The book is primarily valuable for understanding the most refined and creative arguments available, as far as I know, for the critic's paradigm of how and what Joseph translated to give us the Book of Abraham. In providing a seemingly compelling and certainly creative story for the origins of the Book of Abraham based upon some of the mysterious Kirtland Egyptian papers, Vogel excels, although his arguments still fail. In addition to thoroughly discussing his paradigm for the translation, Vogel also tackles a variety of other issues. He explores several aspects of the book of Abraham's story. He provides a timeline for some of the key moments and documents involved and critiques aspects of the book of Abraham text, the explanations of the facsimiles, and a few of the evidences apologists offer for the book. He also provides alternate 19th century sources that, would, that could help account for the book. It is comprehensive in terms of providing the negative angles that can be taken, but it fails awkwardly short in responding to some important issues that defenders of the Book of Abraham have been pointing out for years. Another reason for paying attention to Vogel's book is that the background it provides can help Latter day Saint scholars and students of the Book of Abraham not only uh, to not only better understand focal points of the debate on the Book of Abraham and the methods critics use to undermine it, but also but to also better recognize when others even within the Church, treat questionable claims from critics as fact. For example, understanding Vogel's uh, polemical arguments and methodology can help readers discern the nature of the unfortunate and now openly admitted influence of Vogel on the important volume from, Joseph Smith, from the Joseph Smith Papers that deals with the Book of Abraham. Namely, the Joseph Smith Papers' Revelations and Translations, Volume 4, Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts, hereafter known as J.S.P.R.T. 4. The volume is remarkably valuable, but readers need to understand the subtle and pervasive bias in the many choices and statements made therein. After publication, Brian Hauglid, one of the volume editors of J.S.P.R.T. 4, praised Vogel's approach to the Book of Abraham, noting that it had influenced his work as an editor. Vogel discusses this and praises Hauglid for that in his book, uh, that's on page 16 in the in the book. Also citing Howglid's public acceptance of critical approaches to the Book of Abraham on Facebook, which is given in done in uh, footnote 20 of Vogel. That influence can be seen in many ways that have been pointed out elsewhere. Unfortunately, scholars relying on the on the scholarship in J.S.P.R.T. 4 may not recognize the bias from the influence of Vogel and other critics that may lead readers to accept many errant, unstated assumptions or unjustified conclusions, or to miss many valuable insights that arguably should have been provided. Vogel's arguments though will enable readers to see why, for example, the biased framing of details around the Book of Abraham manuscripts and the sloppiness in assigned dates for some of the documents are important, and why those flaws improperly play into the hands of critics. Such flaws, by the way, would likely only be noticed by those familiar with the details of the attacks levied against the Book of Mormon, and should not be used to impugn the work or motives of the Joseph Smith Papers team. In spite of the subtle and easily missed errors in one still remarkable volume, J.S.P.R.T. 4, the vast body of work from the Joseph Smith Papers team generally complies with the highest standards of scholarship. Taking the Shine Off Scheinha, An Insight into Vogel's Approach it would be unfair to expect every argument in favor of the book of Abraham to be considered, or to expect every scholar who has published something, out, something in favor of the book to be discussed by Vogel. But it's fair to expect commonly cited issues to be addressed and major foundational works to be cited and discussed. However, my expectations in this area were met with disappointment. Here we consider the noteworthy issue of Scheinha as a, as a telling illustration of Vogel's approach. After reading Vogel and beginning this review, I turned to what may be one of the most important and far-ranging foundational works of Latter-day Saint scholarship on the book of Abraham, One Eternal Round, the magnum opus of Dr. Hugh Nibley that was completed after his death with the help of Dr. Michael D. Rhodes. While reading pages 333-334, to 334, I was reminded that the word schein said to be the sun in Abraham 3.13, can actually mean the sun in ancient Egyptian. It is one of the numerous clues in the book of Abraham that something is going on other than mere fabrication by Joseph Smith. The plausibility of Shein-Ha as the sun in ancient Egypt is now one of multiple evidences of ancient origins that that apologists sometimes mention in discussing the book of Abraham. It is not absolute proof of anything, but is a meaningful issue and one that demands attention. What is especially interesting is that Scheinha was not widely used to mean the sun in ancient Egypt. Use of that term for the sun is only attested during a relatively brief span of about six centuries that overlaps with the likely time that Abraham lived, as John Gee has noted. Perhaps that was a lucky guess, but one that should at least raise an eyebrow. As I read Nibley's observations, I recalled reading about Scheinha several times in Vogel's book but I could not recall how Vogel attempted to refute the main point that Joseph's identification of Scheinha as the sun was plausible in ancient Egypt. As I went back to Vogel, I saw he had much to say about Scheinha, mentioning it 28 times. He's obviously aware of the importance of this topic. Beginning on page 158, Vogel claims that Scheinha did not originate with the translation of the book of Abraham, but was a codename used in the 1835 printing of the Doctrine and Covenants. He argues that Sheinha came first as a codename and then was added to the book of Abraham in 1842, when Joseph allegedly did the translation of Abraham 3. There is reasonable evidence that Abraham III was likely translated, at least as a first draft in 1835. But the translation of the book of Abraham has at least Uh, had at least begun before the Doctrine and Covenants was printed in August 1835. But whether the word Sheinha first appeared as a a random code word in the Doctrine and Covenants that would be the same as a word in Abraham 3.13, or first arose during work on the Book of Abraham and then was adopted as a memorable, memorable code word standing for Kirtland, The meaning of the apologist argument about Scheinhe is that Joseph Smith correctly identified a real Egyptian word as the sun in Abraham 3.13. So how does Vogel deal with that argument? Vogel goes on for several pages, pages 158 to 163, arguing that Abraham 3 was not translated until 1842 and that its use of sheinah may derive from an 1838 revelation that mentions the plains of Olaha sheinah, Doctrine and Covenants 117, verse 8. He also argues that Hebrew words in Abraham 3, like kokau beam meaning stars, point to an 1842 date of translation, discounting the argument that Joseph's brief 1842 translation work could have included working in Hebrew terms to the existing text even though the many added foreign code names of the 1835 printing of the Doctrine and Covenants already set a precedent for updating an earlier revelation with added names. But through all this talk of Scheinha and where it first occurred and when and when, it was only in preparing this review, prompted by seeing Nibley's discussion of this, of this issue as one of numerous equally fascinating issues in his tome, that I noticed something astonishing— there is no discussion by Vogel of why Abraham III's use of Sheinah is considered evidence for the Book of Abraham, or why it matters to Latter-day Saint defenders. It's as if Vogel is just inoculating readers against a commonly cited evidence without creating any awareness of what the evidence is. One could explain One could explain that without giving very much ground by proposing that Scheinha in Abraham 3:13 is just one lucky guess, but Vogel clearly, but Vogel clearly aware of the argument, doesn't reveal why some see it as relevant evidence. This is this is not the dispassionate scholarship promised in the beginning of the book. There are many other similar nuggets in Nibley's One Eternal Round, along with fascinating vistas for about ancient Egyptian perspectives that help us see the ancient setting of the, of, the, of the broad themes of the Book of Abraham. Unfortunately, readers of Book of Abraham apologetics will not even learn of the existence of Nibley's magnum opus, for it is never discussed nor cited. Nibley is brought into the conversation several times to criticize him for a few statements, but so much of the meat he offered for Book of Abraham students is simply left off the table. For Scheinha and a variety of other issues, I believe there should at least have been a recognition as to what the argument is, with a footnote to the relevant documents, one of which most certainly should be one eternal round. Where Vogel Shines, his overarching theory for the translation of the Book of Abraham. The strength of Vogel's book is in explaining in detail his paradigm for what and how Joseph translated in producing the Book of Abraham. According to Vogel, who sometimes seems to channel von Brody in reading Joseph's mind, Joseph felt he had a valuable tool when he acquired the papyri, for since they could not yet be translated by scholars in the U.S., he could offer his own bogus translation to further impress his followers with his powers. He decided to take a different approach than anything he had done before by first producing a tool for translation and then translating from it. The tool began as the Egyptian alphabet and then became converted to the more complete volume known as the Grammar and Alphabet of the Egyptian Language, or G-A-E-L. Characters from that volume were associated with long explanations having various degrees, from 1 through 5, in which the fifth degree often corresponded with a more fleshed-out definition, so-called. As a work of unschooled mortals with no knowledge of Egyptian, it seems completely misguided and is not an accurate translation of the characters that are, that are Egyptian. Vogel insists that Joseph first created the G-A-E-L and then used some of it to build a storyline and translate the book of Abraham while apologists see strong evidence that it is dependent on the Book of Abraham translation as well as the Doctrine of Covenants or other sources, and not the source of the translation or storyline of the Book of Abraham. In Vogel's Paradigm, Joseph selected a scroll belonging to an ancient priest named Hor that was merely an ordinary funerary text with some interesting drawings, including our current facsimile one. Joseph misinterpreted an ordinary funeral scene as Abraham on the Altar, and then picked some text near, but not immediately next to, that figure on a portion of the scroll that is now known as Joseph Smith Papyrus uh, 11, or JSP 11, or X1, Roman numerals, believing it to contain the Book of Abraham. After working on the G-A-E-L long enough to have some ideas for a storyline, Joseph had two scribes write characters from JSP 11 into the left margin of some blank pages and then dictated the translation that went with those characters, typically giving lengthy blocks of text as many as 200-plus English words for one character or short string of characters in the margins. This translation began with just three characters for Abraham 1, verses 1-3, through dictated to W. W. Phelps on Book of Abraham Manuscript C, with a title beginning with Translation. Then he later dictated more text, beginning with Abraham 1.4, to two other scribes at the same time, with Frederick G. Williams writing Book of Abraham Manuscript A, and Warren Parrish writing Book of Abraham Manuscript B. These two manuscripts, which I call the twin manuscripts, have some similar errors and corrections that seem to reflect scribes taking simultaneous dictation from a speaker who stumbles and changes changes his mind and makes corrections in midstream. Williams takes dictation of verses up until our Abraham 2.5. For some reason, Parrish stopped after Abraham 2.2. Vogel explains that the twin manuscripts from Williams and Parrish provide clear evidence that shows Joseph's translation process at work as he tells scribes what character to write and then dictates the translation. It is live, quote-unquote, Revelation and reveals that, that what Joseph was doing was completely wrong and a total fraud, for the characters on JSP 11 have nothing to do with Abraham. Here the Latter-day Saint apologist might offer a typical response by saying that this process of placing English text next to characters need not mean that Book of Abraham manuscripts reflect live creation of new scripture, but may reflect copying from an existing manuscript. Vogel believes the evidence of similar errors and corrections— proves that dictation was underway, and what else could that mean but Joseph Smith dictating new scripture on the fly? Vogel has a seemingly plausible timeline, apparent evidence of translation occurring, and smoking-gun evidence that seems to give us a direct window into how and what Joseph translated. As for the possibility possibility of contrary evidence, Vogel tells us that there is none, Regarding Nibley's theory expressed in 1975 that the scribes were matching up existing uh, revelation with Egyptian characters to try to show their own skills with Egyptian, Vogel says, quote, there is no evidence that such an event ever took place, unquote, and states that the, the evidence shows just the opposite. Later, he reminds us that, quote, there is no evidence to support the existence of a now lost original text from which the Parrish and Williams documents were copied, unquote. He repeats this claim twice more, uh, twice more later on. For Vogel, we need to understand that, quote, there is, that, 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 quote, there is no evidence, unquote, means, okay, there may be something that looks like evidence, but I've got arguments against it. It's a subtlety in his methodology that may confuse some readers at first. Several reasonable objections to this overarching paradigm remain unanswered in Vogel's treatment. Fortunately, one important objection is not only mentioned, but answered in a truly clever way that I consider a highlight of the book. A clever explanation for the most direct evidence of scribes using an existing translation in making the Book of Abraham Manuscripts. One of the most important of the no-evidence evidences against Vogel's paradigm is the presence of dittography, a mistaken repetition of text, in William's Book of Abraham manuscript A, in which he copies Abraham 2, verses 3-5 to twice. The dittograph occurs on the last surviving page of William's Book of Abraham manuscript A, which can be examined in detail on the Joseph Smith paper's website. But note that the transcript there misses some details that are caught in the finalized version published in the printed volume. Surely Joseph, D- Joseph Smith did not lose track in his on-the-fly storyline and forgetfully jump back and once again make up three large verses matching the previous dictation word for word. Ditography is a very common scribal error. When scribes are copying existing text from a written document and accidentally jump Back to a previous spot in the document. This can easily occur if the place a scribe is looking for in the document has an identical or similar word that also occurs in an earlier spot on the page, as it does in this case. Abraham 2 verse Abraham 2 2 and 2 5 both end with Heron H A R A N in our text, or with Heron H A R O N in William's equivalent of verse 2. So after writing Heron. In the final sentence of verse 5, he could have looked back to the document being copied to find the next starting point after Heron, and seeing a line end with Heron, H-A-R-O-N, at the end of our verse 2, thought he had found his target and picked up his copying with the following verse, Abraham 2, 3, which he had already copied. This huge mistake, along with many other less dramatic clues, seems to require copying from an existing manuscript. Vogel does not overlook this evidence and provides an impressive solution in favor of his model. The large ditograph in manuscript A is visual evidence that Williams was copying from an existing manuscript. If so, how can we accept the theory that he was taking live dictation of newly created scripture from Joseph Smith? Here Vogel truly shines with the creative and almost elegant model that he has devised to overturn the impact of the ditograph of Abraham 2, 3-5 handily uh, turning evidence for an earlier manuscript of at least part of the Book of Abraham into no evidence, quote-unquote, at all. Vogel suggests that when Williams and Warren Parrish allegedly took simultaneous dictation from Joseph to create the the similar twin manuscripts, Book of Abraham Manuscript A and Manuscript B, respectively, Williams, for an unknown reason, wrote an extra paragraph of dictation, that Parrish did not write our current Abraham 2, 3 to 5. Parrish later copied that extra text from manuscript A into manuscript C, along with the text Parrish had written from his own manuscript B. Manuscript C, and that's the one that uh, W. W. Phelps had begun, or excuse me, manuscript C had been started by W. W. Phelps and originally just had Abraham one one two uh, Abraham one verses one through three. It would become what Vogel sees as the translation book, creating the key record for the early Book of Abraham translation. Then maybe a week a week later, in late November 1835, Parrish took more dictation of newly translated texts from Joseph Smith for Abraham two six to eight. That is according to Vogel. For some reason, Williams later wanted to add some of the new material to his own manuscript, according to Vogel, since his manuscript originally ended with the word Heron at the end of Abraham 2.5 in the passage, Therefore he continued in Heron. He searched for Heron in Parrish's document, a word that occurs, it's a word that occurs multiple times, and found the wrong place, Abraham 2.2, with the phrase, the daughter of Heron. Williams thus began copying for a second time our current Abraham 2.3, and continued copying a full paragraph of material he had already written, not noticing the duplication. This is a clever explanation. It is important enough that I will quote directly from Vogel, pages 28 to 31, quote, There is a reconstruction of the events that best explains how the ditograph occurred, and once understood, it becomes clear, that this repetition in no way threatens the oral dictation theory. When Parrish and Williams recorded from Smith's dictation, probably on the 19th and 20th of November 1835, Williams wrote one more paragraph than Parrish. Parrish drew the, the last hieratic character, but left the remainder of the page blank. Next, Parrish copied the English text onto seven pages of the translation book and that's manuscript C, following the half-page Phelps had previously scribed, making some slight changes. After skipping a line, Parrish then copied the paragraph that had been dictated in his absence from the Williams document. At this point, Parrish again began writing from Smith's dictation directly into the book, which, as previously discussed, is evident from the in-line corrections made in his new English text. This possibly occurred on the 24th and or 25th, November 1835, which are the last two entries in Smith's Kirtland Journal in which translation is mentioned. Later, Williams wanted to copy the new text from the translation book into his manuscript to make it complete. The paragraph that Williams last wrote ended with the word Heron on the line by itself as he turned the pages of the translation book looking for a paragraph that ended with that word Williams would first have come to the top of page 7 and would have accidentally began copying the paragraph that he had the paragraph that he had already recorded from Smith's dictation he was apparently unaware that the next paragraph also ended on the pa- following page with heron what may have added to williams confusion was the blank line before the paragraph and the possibility that that either Parrish's or williams paragraph or both, did not have the characters in the margin next to the paragraph. As previously mentioned, Parrish had evidently copied the characters into the margin before copying the English text, but, having miscalculated the number of lines, found it necessary to scrape off two groups of characters on page 7, precisely where the dittograph occurs. This is, again, still, still quoting from Vogel. Because he was no longer a scribe, recording from oral dictation, and was merely recording a sound, a second copy of a text he had already entered into the translation book, Williams saw no need to copy, or that, yeah, that had already been entered into the translation book. Williams saw no need to copy the characters or to maintain the margins in paragraphing. We may not know exactly how Williams introduced a paragraph-long ditograph into his document, but the scenario I have proposed explains more of the evidence and facts than Guy's assertion that the entire document is a copy based on a repeated paragraph at the end. Guy's explanation cannot explain the presence of clear evidence of simultaneous recording from dictation that appears in the document prior to the dittograph, nor can it explain the change in William's method of recording that occurs at the point of the dittograph. End quote. So that ends the passage quoting from Vogel's book. The resolution is brilliant. Yes, of course there is a dittograph, and of course it was created by copying from the wrong place in an existing manuscript, but the existing manuscript was one based on his own manuscript A that was copied by Parrish in the manuscript C that had, that had added translation from Joseph. Williams wanted a copy of the new material, but accidentally started copying a long passage that he had just copied a few days earlier. This explanation seems plausible, or seems reasonable, and has apparently convinced some people, but I am afraid that those who were convinced failed to ask some of the basic questions that need to be raised about Vogel's scenario. First, note that the, quote, change in William's method of recording, unquote, refers to the visible drift in his left margin that occurs partway into the repeated material, Williams no longer holds the margin open for characters and doesn't add the characters he had previously written. Vogel says, quote, "...because Williams changed his method of recording at the beginning where the repeated paragraph occurs, it would be a mistake to conclude the entire document is a visual copy based on the unusual ditograph at the end." end quote. Uh, unquote. I agree that a ditograph on page 4 does not necessarily mean that copying from an existing manuscript occurred on pages 1 to 3 but it certainly means copying occurred on page 4. But Vogel is suggesting that the change in the margin should be taken as evidence in favor of his theory of later copying from what Parrish copied from Williams into manuscript C instead of an existing manuscript being used in the original session when the first instance of Abraham 2, 3-5 was written. Is that reasonable? There are a variety of reasons why one's margin might drift or characters might not be copied. Perhaps something has changed, but what? The dittograph and margin drift happens with the verses that Parrish did not copy in his manuscript, which ends at Abraham 2.2. If both scribes were copying at the same time, could the departure of Parrish have resulted in a change? I have previously offered the proposal that simultaneous dictation could have been occurring, but not of new scripture by Joseph Smith, but by someone else from an existing manuscript. Spelling clues also call for an existing manuscript, one that Parrish seems to have been able to see when he was writing names. Parrish is not a great speaker, giving us priest spelled P-R-E-I-S-T, sacrifice with a -A -A S-A-C-R-A-F-I-C, um, fashion, F-A-S-S-I-O-N for fashion, uh, patriarch spelled wrong with uh, two A's and no I, Government instead of government, people for people, idolatry, i d o l i t r y, delineate, l i n uh, d e l i n i a t e, runing, or running, r u n i n g, and smitten or smitten, s m i t e n. Something that can happen when copying an existing manuscript as the mind recalls a string of multiple familiar words just read. And then writes the recalled words using one's own spelling, not paying attention to the details of how these familiar words were spelled on the document. But in spite of his weakness in spelling, Parrish spells names with remarkable consistency, even when they spells the names with remarkable consistency, even when the there are silent consonants or otherwise difficult spellings. All three occurrences of mamakra m a h m a c h r a h are spelled that way though the first occurrence is not capitalized all three occurrences of Zibna, z i b n a h are the same of the 11 occurrences of pharaoh p h a r a o h a difficult word that many people get wrong he has it correct 8 times once he once he drops the initial h or the final h once he inverts the A-O, and once he has an extra vowel in pharoah, P-H-A-R-O-A-O-H. While spelling errors of proper nouns in manuscript B suggest that Parrish could see a manuscript that was being copied, Kyler Rasmussen has made further observations. The nature of the misspellings of other words in Parrish's manuscript B and in manuscript C for which we know he was copying from existing manuscripts, are consistent, indicating both manuscripts are based on visual copying rather than live dictation. Based on spelling clues, I have argued that Parrish could see the spelling of difficult names while Williams could not for much of his document, and that perhaps Parrish was reading aloud before writing lines down to help Williams in also making a copy. Or another portion could have been, or another person could have been reading to both, but perhaps with the manuscript close to Parrish for easy copying of difficult names. Parrish may have been giving guidance on the placement of characters, and with his departure, Williams didn't know where to place them or didn't care. Alternatively, he could have just grown weary and impatient after four pages of scribal work, a drifting margin, and failure to copy characters. does not require a different setting on a different day. That's the real issue. Did this happen in the complex way Vogel proposes involving different days, with Williams copying from Parrish's copy of his own prior work, or did Williams just copy from the same source that he used the first time he wrote Abraham 2, 3-5? Vogel fails to consider two important questions. One, Is there textual evidence that Williams is copying from Parrish's entry in manuscript C, which has some differences compared to what Williams wrote the first time for Abraham 2, 3-5? And two, does the handwriting and ink flow on the manuscript point to a later second session for the dittograph, or does it appear that the dittograph was done at the same time as the preceding text? Both of these questions lead to answers that stand strongly against Vogel's model creative as it is. I suggest there are three tests we can can consider for Vogel's proposal, apart from any problems in the chronology. Does the duplicate text, perhaps written several days later, show, show use of a different ink, different pen, different ink flow, different spacing, or slant of the text, or does it look as if it were written in the same session as the immediately prior text? Does the evidence Does the first occurrence of Abraham 2, 3-5 show clear signs of oral dictation and essentially no signs of visual copying? Does the second occurrence of Abraham 2, 3-5 show signs of copying from Parrish's document rather than copying from what may have been, in the model of some Latter-day Saint apologist, the document that was the source of the first occurrence and the entire manuscript? Vogel failed to ask these questions. It's not enough to offer a clever but convoluted argument that in theory could account for some details when other important details clash with the proposal. Let's consider three, the, the three factors. Note that I am using the transcript from jsprt 4 that's the Joseph Smith Papers book on, volume on Abraham, which is considered the final version with some differences relative to the preliminary transcript on the Joseph Smith Papers website. Both have errors, but the transcript in the book is more detailed and catches some things that weren't noticed when the, website, when the website version was done. Most of the corrections I mentioned for this passage are not shown on the website, only in the book. Point number one. Question number one. Different appearance? As Williams begins the ditograph, the ink flow, the appearance of the ink, the spacing and slant of his text all continue exactly as before, as far as I can see. I find it difficult to believe that this is is in a new session several days later, now in the new mode of copying from a manuscript that was all oral dictation before. A change does crop up when Williams abandons the left margin he had been following, but that only occurs after he has copied for a few lines. Regardless of why he allows the margin to drift, his style and ink are indistinguishable from the text above. In 1835, without the benefit of mass-produced, consistent ballpoint pens, the appearance of the ink could easily vary from one session to the next, and, of course, details of handwriting could vary. Looking at the writing of various individuals in the photographs of documents in the Joseph Smith papers helps us see just how much the appearance of a scribe's writing can vary. For manuscript A, it strongly appears that the ditograph occurred in the same session as the first instance. Two, signs of visual copying in the first occurrence? Yes, there are indications of making a visual copy in the first occurrence of the duplicated text, this is Abraham 2, 3-5, just as there are throughout the rest of the preceding text. For this specific passage, these apparent copying errors include 1. Writing the instead of the, an easy copying mistake to make, dropping one or more letters from a word, occurs in both Williams and Parish, in both Williams and Parrish. With two more examples of this in the second occurrence of the digraph, when we know that Williams is copying visually, there he drops two letters in kindred and more in writing b r o for brothers. Two uh, uh, point number uh, example number two. Writing an R to begin the word land before changing it to an L. This is indicated in the printed book, not the website. Three, indicating initially writing D-E-M and changing it to D-E-N-O followed by M-I-N-A-T-E-D to create the word denominated. Also not indicated on the website transcript. And 4. Initially writing an S and then changing it to a D for the word dwelt, which can make sense as a copying error. Cursive S with an elongated upper peak can look like a D, but not as a likely error in oral dictation, also not indicated on the website's transcript further this passage has much more punctuation than is typical of scribes including william specifically when taking dictation of revelation from joseph smith in this short passage we have by my count relying on the printed manuscript 6 commas 1 period 2 colons and 3 semicolons it's more heavily punctuated than some other parts of william's manuscript both the errors and the punctuation mark uh, and the punctuation mark this passage as more typically as more typical of a visually copied text than a scribe taking oral dictation from Joseph Smith, though the punctuation is not always consistent with how it was done the first time. And issue number three. Is the dittograph copied from Parrish's manuscript C? I find this issue especially interesting. Parrish's version of Abraham 2, 3-5, presumably copied from Williams, has some notable differences relative to the first occurrence written by Williams, for example, both instances of therefore in Parish follow a comma, not the colons that Williams has, and both are in lowercase, while in Williams both are capitalized. So what happens when Williams allegedly copies the text from Parrish to unknowingly create his ditograph? The result is closer to his first occurrence. Uh, uh, both occurrences of therefore are still capitalized, one follows a colon, and the other a line break where a colon may have been overlooked. William's initial colon after idolatry and before therefore may have been inserted, according to the transcript in the book, and is missing in the dittograph. And when I say the book, it's referring to J.S.P.R.T. 4, the Joseph Smith Papers book, uh, and is missing in the dittograph. But there is a line break there, followed by the capitalized therefore. Parrish, on the other hand, has, quote, unto, unto his idolatry, comma, therefore, and therefore is lowercase, uh, end quote, which differs twice in capitalization and once in punctuation. The capitalization is that idolatry is capitalized for parish, and that therefore is not. Also significant is the difference between parish between Williams and parish in writing the phrase we now we now have as thy father's house in Abraham two three, in manuscript C Parrish writes house in copying from Williams and it's clear with an unmistakable S. Williams, on the other hand, has home each time he writes that verse. The editors of the Joseph Smith Papers volume on the book of the Book of Abraham transcribe both instances as home, but add footnotes to both suggesting that the word might be house. It is unclear at first glance, however, detailed examination of Williams' handwriting shows that Shows uh, that uh, the word in both cases is home, with very little justification to read it as house. Williams, whatever motivated Williams to write home the first time, again motivated him to write home in the Didograph. He most likely is not copying from Parish as he makes this the Didograph, but rather continues copying the same existing manuscript he had used the first time. If Williams were copying from manuscript C for the Didigraph, why did he why did he fail to copy the character in the margin where the ditagraph began? Later, why did he fail to follow Parrish's paragraph break that is followed by but I Abram, and also fail to use the character in the margin that Parrish has there? At the place where Parrish has stopped writing, Williams creates a ditograph and stops using characters. Perhaps they were working together in some way, and things changed when Parrish quit and perhaps left. That was a consideration in my prior proposal that Parrish may have been reading aloud to help Williams in making his copy for a while. It may be possible that the original manuscript he was copying from lacked characters, and that instructions for character placement had been provided by Phelps to Parrish, who oversaw character placement while he was present with Williams, if the two scribes were present and possibly collaborating as they began making their copies. So Parrish's departure could have left Williams unsure of what to do regarding characters. There are many possibilities here, including the scenario proposed by John Gee, in which William wrote his copy first, and then Parrish copied it, in some cases preserving the manuscript Errors and corrections, as if seeking to make an accurate copy of the original document, warts and all. Guy's analysis also includes consideration of all the errors and corrections in the twin manuscripts, which he concludes strongly weigh against Vogel's scenario. In any case, it simply does not look like Williams has been copying from Parrish, but he rather appears to be using the same source, a a source that may have lacked characters, though his punctuation is inconsistent. For example, a colon in his initial quote, many flocks in Heron, unquote, becomes a comma in the dittograph with many flock in Heron and many being inserted above the line. Williams may be getting tired at this point as he is making a large number of errors, such as dropping the word after, writing bro for brothers, writing Sarah instead of Sarai, skipping many and having to insert it, dropping the S in on, uh, in flocks, and when he gets to some of the allegedly new material and Parish's document with a very clear, quote, but I, Abram, and Lot, unquote, dropping the very visible I of manuscript C to render, quote, but Abram and Lot, unquote. Fatigue and growing errors make sense if this were all a continuation of a lengthy version reaching the end of page 4, Versus starting fresh to write down a short passage of new material from manuscript C page four of this manuscript, though is, remar- is probably not the end of that session since it ends in the middle of a sentence or uh, in the middle of a sentence. Surely there was a page five and perhaps more, but no more has survived. Many relevant documents in the translation may have been lost or destroyed, not just a significant portion of, of the original scrolls but also the text that Williams and Parrish were using to make their copies. Why were they making copies in the first place? Perhaps to continue helping Phelps by adding new speculative material to his Grammar and Alphabet, which I see is the apparent purpose indicated by the headers on both of the twin manuscripts that refer to the, quote, sign of the fifth degree of the second part, That's not the kind of header we would expect from Joseph creating scripture but it fits in perfectly with the unfinished content of the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. It is direct evidence that Williams and Parrish saw their manuscripts not as new live revelation of the translation of the Book of Abraham, but as an effort to use the existing translation to further translate, quote, an alphabet to the Book of Abraham, unquote. This is the phrase used in Joseph's journal entry of July 1835. Meaning, they were seeking to link existing existing English text to characters to be used for the unfinished section of the second part of the G-A-E-L, dealing with the fifth degree of those characters. Vogel, unfortunately, makes no mention of the apparent meaning of that heading or why it may be significant to apologists. Vogel's hypothetical scenario is interesting, but seems to fail basic criteria that we might expect if it were true. Persistent evidence points to the use of an original manuscript during the creation of the, of the uh, of Book of Abraham Manuscript A prior to the obvious copying that occurred in the dittograph. The source for William's scribal work doesn't appear to have changed when the dittigraph occurs. The details of the dittigraph do not point to Parrish's work in Manuscript C as a source used by Williams, and the appearance of page 4 of Williams' manuscript suggests a continuous session— Perhaps with an increasingly weary Williams, rather than a fresh session several days later, the ditograph and the rest of the twin uh, rest of the twin Book of Abraham manuscripts do not fit with Vogel's complex model, offering too much evidence for the use of an existing manuscript and a ditograph that occurred in the continuation of the same session as the original occurrence of Abraham two, three to five. The ditograph still stands as compelling evidence against Vogel's paradigm but there may be even bigger hurdles for Vogel's theory. A moot theory? Overlooked hurdles. Arguments over the textual details of the twin manuscripts, which Vogel dates to November 1835, are irrelevant when one considers the more serious barriers to Vogel's theory. In fact, in light of these hurdles, Vogel's creative discussion of the twin manuscripts and the dittigraph may be simply moot. The first is the textual evidence from what supposedly represents the beginning of Joseph's dictation of revealed text, the verses of Abraham 1, 1 1-3, penned by W. W. Phelps in Book of Abraham Manuscript C. Like the twin manuscripts, it provides compelling textual evidence that it does not represent live dictation, but was derived from an existing manuscript. Consider the general nature of the text, which has the appearance of a finished manuscript with careful punctuation unlike the typical results of scribal work when Joseph is dictating Scripture. The editors of one volume of the Joseph Smith Papers series, Documents, Volume 5, January 1835 to October 1838, made this observation when they noted why Book of Abraham manuscripts A and B were likely copied from an existing manuscript. Quote, Textual evidence suggests that these Book of Abraham texts were based on an earlier manuscript that no longer exists. Unquote. "The supporting footnote explains, quote, "Documents dictated directly by J.S. Joseph Smith typically had few paragraph breaks, punctuation marks or contemporaneous alterations to the text. All the extant copies, including the featured text, have regular paragraphing and punctuation included at the time of transcription, as well as several cancellations and insertions." Unquote. In addition to an abundance of seemingly careful punctuation, 17 commas, 10 semicolons, 1 colon, and 1 period, by my count, using the transcript, there are also corrections made that are consistent with copying from an existing manuscript, unlike Joseph's revelatory diction. The first is writing, Desiring one, and then wiping off one, and then writing, To be one who possessed great knowledge. After writing the phrase, Quote, a greater follower of righteousness. Unquote, Phelps apparently had skipped the phrase a possessor of greater knowledge. Perhaps this happened because he had just written something very similar, and believing he was looking at a phrase he had already written, continued with the following phrase a father of many nations. Only later noticing what he had skipped, the missing phrase is then inserted above the line. The next correction appears to be changing to be changing a comma to a semicolon after Prince of Peace the kind of correction that is atypical of scribes recording Joseph's dictation and much more consistent with copying an existing manuscript. Later, Phelps writes through fathers and later inserts the missing the, for through the fathers, between those words, a mistake consistent with visual copying. Though scribes taking dictation can get behind and miss words as well. Of particular importance in Phelps' writing are the footnotes he inserts that link two characters to very small blocks of English text. The first footnote occurs before the phrase, in the land of the Chaldeans, and the second footnote before Abraham. It looks almost as if a footnote may have been uh, may have originally uh, been intended before the next word saw, S-A-W, after Abraham, and may be related to the scratching out of something in the margin replaced by the number two, or the footnote two. Then another character occurs halfway down in Phelps' writing without a footnote or a paragraph break. It's as if Phelps began with associations to to specific words or phrases, then wrote the next character of interest without knowing how to associate it to anything specific, and then stopped. The twin manuscripts continue where Phelps left off, but begin with headers that link the copies to the G-A-E-L. They associate new characters not found in the GAEL with blocks of more text from the book of Abraham, while also showing the same textual features that point to use of an existing manuscript in addition to some common errors and corrections that could be consistent with oral dictation from someone reading a manuscript, but less likely as live creation in the mind of Joseph Smith of New Scripture. Before we can entertain a theory about manuscripts A and B representing live dictation of new scripture, we need to first address the evidence from the, from the earlier work of Phelps on manuscript C that points to the use of an existing translation. Phelps appears to begin by searching for connections between a couple of characters in the GAEL and on an existing text with detailed punctuation. The specific connections stop after two characters, and his work stops after three verses and three characters. Williams and Parrish are obviously continuing whatever Phelps had begun, labeling their documents as being related to the fifth degree of the second part of the GAEL. In the GAEL, it would seem most logical to infer that they are seeking to assist Phelps with the creation of the GAEL, treating new characters that have not been considered yet but their efforts get nowhere, and the the new characters considered are never entered into the G-A-E-L. The abundant textual evidence contrary to Vogel's paradigm is not considered, which is unfortunate for a book purporting to explain the positions taken by Latter-day Saint defenders of the Book of Abraham. In addition to the textual evidence, further barriers to Vogel's theory come from highly relevant historical documents that are ignored or poorly considered. Vogel's model has Joseph first exerting great efforts to create the GAEL as a tool to assist in his translation, translating in a method entirely different than occurred for the Book of Mormon, the translation of the Bible that gave us the Book of Moses by Revelation, and the translation of a lost record given in Doctrine and Covenants 7. In Vogel's model, Joseph begins translation in November 1835, producing the verses from Abraham 1, Uh, Abraham 1.1 to 2.18, and then moving on to the rest of the text in 18.42. Unfortunately, this does not square with the historical record, both in terms of how Joseph translated, but especially when he translated. Here Vogel overlooks the the import of repeated statements of direct and indirect witnesses who unanimously describe Joseph translating by revelation, not by an apparent academic method relying on the G-A-E-L, Warren, Warren Parrish said, quote, "...I have sat by his side and penned down the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphics as he claimed to receive it by inspiration from heaven." Unquote. Vogel quotes this in his book, but misses its significance. This was said after Parrish had become an enemy of the Church and could easily have mocked the bizarre scenario of Joseph trying to use the G-A-E-L as a dictionary he had made up to translate the Book of Abraham. With one character evincing as many as 200 words. But there is never a, question, a mention of Joseph using the method Vogel presents as obvious. No witness speaks of Joseph translating it by use of, of a strange academic method with the GAEL. It was simply by revelation. It did not take months of impossibly creating a translation tool to translate. Rather, translation began almost immediately. Vogel acknowledges that Oliver Cowdery and Joseph translated a few characters right away, and this impressed Michael Chandler, the entrepreneur who brought the papyri to Joseph. But Vogel asserts that, quote, whatever Smith said to con- to convince Chandler of his power to translate, it has nothing to do with, with, with Hebrew Bible patriarch Abraham, end quote. Rather, he speculates that perhaps Smith spoke about magic amulet, amulets and zodiac symbols or astronomy when he saw Facsimile II, which may have jived with something Chandler had heard from, uh, earlier from scholars. One important, relevant document that Vogel does not cite comes from the recollections of John Riggs. And here, here I'm quoting from Terrell Gibbons and Brian Hauglid, The Pearl of Greatest Price, and there's a quote within this quote. So we begin. Arriving in Kirtland with these Egyptian artifacts, Chandler stayed at the Riggs Hotel and requested an audience with Joseph Smith. According to a later recollection of John Riggs, he, quote, was present when the prophet first saw the papyrus, from which is translated the Book of Abraham, unquote. Uh, still continuing with the quote from, from, from Givens, in examining the papyrus, the Mormon prophet was struck by what he perceived as a similarity between some of the Egyptian characters and characters of reformed Egyptian that he had previously copied from the gold plates. Smith was given permission to take the papyrus home, and quote, the morning of following Joseph, the, the morning following Joseph came with the leaves he had translated. End quote. And that's the end of the passage from Givens and the Translation of something had begun, and there was more than just a word or two. There were multiple pages, leaves, the historical record shows that Joseph could translate rapidly and did not need to first create translation tools. The record shows that he almost immediately began translation, not just commentary on the alleged zodiac-like nature of facsimile two, Vogel's suggestion that its astronomical associations are something obvious that Joseph could see is based on hindsight. He did not need to and would not wait until November 1835 to translate uh, Abraham one, nor wait until 1842 to translate Abraham three and beyond. We know this for many reasons, such as the use of Scheinha in Abraham 3:13 in 1835, as well as other factors such as these provided by Kerry Mulstein and Megan Hansen. Oliver's use of language from the first few verses of Abraham one in a patriarchal blessing he recorded in September 1835 which must have been drawing upon a july translation since no translation occurred in august or september joseph smith's reference in a letter in, to the church in 1839 to quote the sun moon or stars all the times of the revolutions all the appointed days months and years and all the days of their months of all the days of their days months and years and all their glories laws and set times shall be revealed End quote Echoing the discussion in Abraham three of the quote, times and seasons in the revolutions unquote, of Kolob in verse four and the various set times of verses six, seven, and ten, Joseph's eighteen thirty eight sermon in which he instructed the church in the mysteries in, uh, in which he quote, instructed the church in the mysteries of the kingdom of God, giving them a history of the planets, etc. And of Abraham's writings upon the planetary system, etc, Mulstein observes that that quote, the specific phrase "Writings upon the planetary system" strongly suggests that the prophet was preaching about Abraham three Nothing else in his revelations matched that description end quote. against the latter two points. Vogel argues that the g a e l must be what Joseph meant when he mentioned the astronomical items. He has a reasonable argument. The G-A-E-L does describe celestial bodies, including Kolob, a late edition by Warren Parrish. It mentions revolutions and governing powers and has many concepts and names that sometimes seem closely related to facsimile too. It speaks of some bodies rotating more slowly than others, as in Abraham 3, but does not use the distinctive term set time. The question is whether these astronomical matters were derived from existing translation or were used for translation later in 1842. The GAEL, in my opinion, does not provide anything that looks like the kind of coherent narrative implied by Abraham's writings on the planetary system. Joseph wasn't speaking about entries in a dictionary or alphabet, but about the translation of Abraham's text. Abraham 3, coupled with facsimile 2, seems to provide a reasonable foundation for the astronomical material that could have been used to create the fragmented statements in the G-A-E-L, a com- uh, complete with bullseyes, such as associating figure 1 with the first creation, figure 4, the bird in a ship with the expanse of the heavens, Hathor the cow associated with the sun, etc., for which the GAEL could not serve as a source. It's easy to see how the Book of Abraham material could have sparked some of the related entries scattered in the GAEL, and very difficult to explain how that material could have been brought together to create the coherent narrative in the Book of Abraham. Missing evidence that could fill a book or two. While Vogel does mention some of the arguments in favor of the Book of Abraham, especially older works where some statements may have missed the mark, uh, what has been overlooked is far more than a few nuggets like Scheinha. Book of Abraham apologetics suffers not just from the failure to treat some relevant evidence, but also from a basic failure to recognize the hurdles that Vogel's paradigm faces, including missed questions that need to be asked and issues that need to be addressed if the work is meant to be scholarly. To be clear, though, there's much to appreciate in the work Vogel has done to compile his arguments in a comprehensive form, It would be better, though, if Vogel didn't claim it was an objective, dispassionate work of historical scholarship and instead said that he was just presenting the best arguments he could find against the book of Abraham a missing hurdle from a missing portion of facsimile 2. One of the surprising missing issues involves Joseph Smith's comments about some of the Egyptian characters on the right side of facsimile 2, characters that come from the very papyrus fragment that Vogel claims has absolutely been proven to be the source of the Book of Abraham translation. Tim Barker carefully examined this issue in an important presentation at the 2020 Fair Mormon Conference entitled Translating the Book of Abraham, the answer under our heads. The key point here is that a large gap in the damaged facsimile 2 was filled in with Egyptian characters in preparation for publication, and those characters were taken from Joseph Smith, from JSP eleven, the papyrus fragment that was the source of most of the characters used in the margins of the three Book of Abraham manuscripts. Said to be telltale evidence that Joseph Smith was using those characters as the source of it for his bogus translation. About half of the characters in the book of Abraham manuscript margins were used in filling in the gaps on facsimile 2. Reuben Headlock did this under the guidance of Joseph Smith, as Barker shows. The inserted characters are in three lines on the central right panel, labeled as figures 13, 14, and 15 in our printing of facsimile 2, and the inserted characters in the rim, labeled as figure 18, are all treated the same in Joseph's comments. The explanations for those characters Quote, "will be given in our in the own due time of the lord" End quote. that declaration is followed by the statement this statement that refers to all the comments made regarding facsimile 2 quote, "the above translation is given as far as we have any right to give at the present time" End quote. whatever the scribes of those puzzling book of abraham manuscripts with characters in the margins thought they were doing with egyptian characters added to portions of joseph's revealed text The explanations on facsimile 2 strongly suggest that Joseph had not used characters from JSP 11 as the source for the Book of Abraham translation. Quote, Joseph clearly indicates that he did not translate JSP 11, Barker explains. This is one of the first and most important hurdles to clear for Vogel's thesis. Will he jump over it, knock it over, or step around it? We won't know in this book because he runs his race on a track where that hurdle is nowhere in sight. As happens in many heated debates on controversial issues, a single piece of evidence rarely creates a slam-dunk argument and can often be attacked in various ways. Here one can wonder if Joseph really authored or authorized the choice of characters. The record does indicate supervision by Joseph in this, and even if so, whether it's possible that Joseph didn't recognize which papyrus fragment he had translated— that seems unlikely, or didn't recognize the characters he supposedly had scrutinized for months back in 1835, if the characters were presented to him without telling him which papyrus Reuben Hedlock selected as a source. I suppose this could then be a problem. So, of course, arguments can be raised against this piece of evidence, but this is still vital evidence to consider if one wishes the book to be viewed, uh, Vogel's book, to be viewed as comprehensive and dispassionate, and if one wishes to address the most important arguments from Latter-day Saint defenders of the Book of Abraham. In objecting to missing elements, I am not saying that Vogel deliberately left them out to mislead readers. He may simply be so close to his own point of view that objections to his arguments are found unworthy of attention but that perspective is one of blindness and sometimes and undermines the claims he makes. More missing issues. Strangely, Vogel seems to simply ignore much of what Latter-day Saint apologists have identified to be among the most relevant documents and most important arguments for understanding the meaning of the papers related to the Book of Abraham. Besides those related to Joseph's comments on characters from JSP 11, the name Scheinha, and other issues previously discussed, Other emissions include, here's a list of bullet points, um, the Egyptian counting document, one of the earliest documents in the Kirtland Egyptian papers that were relied on in the GAEL. This document gives us important clues about what was and what was not being translated, in quotes, as well as clues related to the purpose of the project. Although the importance of this document was raised in, in at least one of the sources Vogel cites, he's silent on this issue. It shows W. W. Phelps exploring purely non-Egyptian characters as, quote, Egyptian, unquote, possibly for his interest in exploring the pure language, so-called, of the ancients. Some of these non-Egyptian characters are, are imported into the Egyptian alphabets and G-A-E-L. Clearly, something other than or in addition to translating the real papyri, papyri is at play. Why not let us know about this important document and the way it fits Pro Book of Abraham paradigms. Next bullet point: Mulstein's discovery that the owner of Joseph of the Joseph Smith Papyri, an Egyptian priest named Hor, would be from the time and place Thebes, circa 200 BC, where Egyptian priest had ac- had ready access to and a fascination with Jewish lore. The idea that a priest from Thebes in Hoar's era had an Egyptian document adapted to convey information featuring Abraham's life is remarkably consistent with Egyptian history. Call it just another lucky coincidence, but it's certainly uh, it's, a, it's a it's certainly a basic factoid of interest in Book of Abraham apologetics not to be found in Vogel's book. Another bullet point. The manuscripts from Oliver Cowdery and Frederick G. Williams, both showing two pairs of Egyptian-like characters, presumably from the Book of Mormon project, beneath a pair of English phrases, and the phrases are the Book of Mormon and the Interpreters of Languages. Assuming that the English corresponds to a translation, the characters are compact but not ridiculously so. Still having a logical relationship in which each pair of characters represents only two significant words, apart from the and of. Next bullet point. The abundant use of translated material, of so called translated material, in the GAEL that is taken from documents not closely related to the Book of Abraham, including many already existing revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants that are obviously alluded to or cited in portions of the GAEL. While several LDS writers have mentioned this, the greatest buzz came about ten years ago in a presentation by William Shriver in the course of arguing that the GAEL may have been intended to be a reverse cipher for encoding revelations to hide information from enemies of the Church. The theory has some gaps, as do all theories trying to explain what the GAEL was intended to do, but Shriver's theory should also have been cited as one of the several possibilities that Latter-day Saints have raised regarding the strange GAEL. But whether Schreiber's theory is mentioned or not, Vogel should at a minimum have engaged with the data Schreiber and others have presented about the influence of material from unexpected sources on the GAEL. Final bullet point, the evidence from several documents showing that Joseph had provided at least some of the astronomical material related to the Book of Abraham during 1835. Vogel does tackle some important arguments and evidences. Evidences. One of these is the evidence from the Egyptian alphabets, where Joseph's manuscript shows signs that he's not the ringleader behind the basic approach of having columns for characters, sounds, and translations. Joseph simply ignored the columns for sounds and wrote over them. Further, the insertion at the beginning shows us right away that he was not leading the, the insertions at the beginning, of uh, the Egyptian alphabet document from Joseph Smith, uh, shows us right away that he was not leading the effort, but probably copying or drawing upon another document. The documentary evidence points to Phelps as the mastermind behind the projects. Vogel mentions part of this evidence but dismisses it too hastily, pages eighty nine to ninety two. Vogel does have a chapter, chapter eight, that explores some of the evidences that Book of Abraham Defenders have used to suggest the book has ancient origins. Here he shows relatively more engagement with Latter day Saint Apologists, though almost exclusively John Gee and Cary Milstein, For evidence, he argues that some of the evidences for for example, he argues that some of the evidences for antiquity in the book of Abraham could have been known to Joseph Smith since they could be found in various books in Joseph's day. It's a fair argument. He also delves into the proposal that Abraham was using an ancient geocentric astronomical model, not one from Joseph's environment, which we consider later. Much more interesting than the details of any physical model Abraham or a redactor had in mind is the purpose of treating astronomy in the first place, and here we come to what I consider to be the most important evidentiary finding in Guy's analysis on the issue. Gee notes the Egyptian wordplay inherent in Abraham's discussion in Abraham 3, where the word for stars can also mean spirits, as the Egyptian word for stars can also mean spirits, and Abraham's teaching that the planetary bodies have an order with a, uh, have an order with a grand body Kolob being behind them all. He points out that Abraham is paving the way to teach Pharaoh from the principles of astronomy that the same order applies to spirits and the Lord is above them all, meaning that Pharaoh is not the grandest, but God is. It's a teaching that Abraham could not blurt out directly without inviting capital punishment, but he could teach it indirectly. In describing astronomy, and then making the connection to the nature of souls as well, Pharaoh could be taught an important truth about God somewhat obliquely. What once seemed like a disjointed, illogical development in Abraham 3, suddenly jumping from astronomy to the nature of premortal souls, in light of a linguistic insight that could only come from an Egyptologist, we can now see that Abraham 3 is surprisingly reasonable in a way that Joseph could not have knowingly fabricated. On this issue, however, Vogel is silent. There's no awareness of this important aspect of Guy's argument on astronomy in the Book of Abraham. While Vogel takes on some of the evidence used to support the Book of Abraham, his scope is surprisingly narrow, and far too much is overlooked. The Pearl of Great Price Central website has been offering a series of posts and videos on evidence pertaining to the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses. These don't seem to have come into Vogel's crosshairs. While Vogel is focused on what Guy and Mullestein have to say, that focus is quite selective. One can get a feel for how little of the work of Latter-day Saint apologist has been considered by comparing Vogel's book to an August 2020 review of recent developments related to, to the Book of Abraham by Cary Mulstein Mule, In scholarly report for the Book of Abraham, Mullstein summarizes some of the works that provide support for historicity of the text, as well as information on how to approach the facsimiles and the translation process. Important findings published by Kevin Barney, Quentin Barney, and Stephen Smoot, listed in that paper, are not mentioned by Vogel. Kevin Barney, for example, provides evidence that the pagan god el mentioned in the Book of Abraham, corresponds well with the god El of the Canaanites. Quentin Barney's analysis of the ancient crocodile god of Egypt shows that it aligns perfectly with Joseph Smith's comment on the crocodile in facsimile 1 as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. This is one of the more commonly cited evidences in favor of the Book of Abraham, but there is no mention by Vogel. One of the articles by Stephen Smoot should have been cited in Vogel's treatment of one of the evidences he does tackle, the claim that the ancient place Olishem, mentioned in the Book of Mormon, excuse me, in the Book of Abraham, has now been confirmed by archaeology to actually have existed in the right time and place, as Guy argues, at a northern Ur location, while some scholars prefer a southern location. Vogel critiques Guy by citing an old criticism of Guy's proposal that was based on the, re- on the on the reasons used to favor a more southern Ur, but those arguments are carefully considered and rebutted by Smoot. Mulstein's partial list of important sources relevant to the defense of the Book of Abraham should have been considered by Vogel, but only a small portion seems to be given any attention. Also neglected are all 36 cited articles from Pearl of Great Price Central and a reference from John Gee and Stephen Ricks that is described as, quote, the most comprehensive methodological approach to evaluating the historicity of the book of Abraham, end quote, which also points to key issues such as Sobek, the crocodile god. As for the crocodile god in facsimile 1, Vogel does note that Joseph associated the crocodile with Pharaoh. It would be more accurate to say that Joseph called the crocodile, quote, the idolatrous god of Pharaoh, end quote. However, once again, Vogel does not explain why this is viewed as an important as an important piece of evidence among Book of Abraham defenders, as with his evasive statement of the Scheinha treatment of the Scheinha evidence, he does not cite any references here that could help the reader understand why some of us consider Joseph's statement about the crocodile to be evidence for the Book of Abraham, but he cautiously tries to neutralize that unsighted evidence, for those who may encounter it by suggesting that Joseph may have obtained the idea for the Crocodile-Pharaoh Association from Adam Clark's biblical commentary. That's on page 232 of Vogel's book. Recently, there have been claims that Joseph relied heavily on Adam Clark in preparing his inspired translation of the Bible, though careful analysis has shown those claims to be without merit with no evidence of Clark influencing Joseph in that project. Vogel's proposal seems to have slightly more merit, perhaps. He notes that in discussing Exodus 1, 11 Clark indicates that the title Pharaoh, quote, signifies crocodile, a sacred animal among the Egyptians, end quote. That's quoting, you know, citing Vogel at page 232. Even if Joseph had carefully studied Clark's massive multi-volume work, is a statement about the meaning of the name of Pharaoh enough to guide Joseph to the bullseye of identifying a crocodile not as a symbol of Pharaoh, but as, quote, the idolatrous god of Pharaoh, end quote. The phrasing is 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 a perfectly accurate description of the role of Sobek, the crocodile god directly associated with Pharaoh. Again, Vogel tries to diminish an argument without admitting that there is a potentially impressive evidence at hand. It is just a random borrowing from Adam Clark, he says, just as Scheinha was nothing more than borrowing a random code code name from the Doctrine and Covenants. Particularly unfortunate is overlooking one of Guy's most impressive finds published in his article, Four Idolatrous Gods in the Book of Abraham. Guy presents evidence for the authenticity and plausibility of the book of Abraham's names given for each of the four gods under the lion couch in facsimile 1, and named in Abraham 1.6. Many more evidences could be cited, such as Joseph properly identifying figure 6 in facsimile 2 as related to, quote, the four quarters of the earth, unquote, and quote, properly recognizing the significance of many more aspects of facsimile 2 and much more, including some fascinating finds compiled by Robert F. Smith that merit more attention. No geocentrism in Abraham's day? One of the few evidences for the book of Abraham's ancient plausibility that Vogel tackles is the proposal that information about astronomy in Abraham III is given in geocentric terms in order to help Abraham converse on astronomy with Pharaoh's court. After stating that a knowledge of Egyptology is not necessary to address the issues regarding the Book of Abraham, he critiques Latter-day Saint of Egyptologists several times for their statements about ancient Egypt. While I believe amateurs should be able to challenge scholars, and that good can come from anyone's reasonable critique or analysis of past scholarship— We amateurs should also recognize that those with formal training in their field may know what they are doing, so our critiques need to be backed with good evidence or logic and still may be wrong. Vogel's critique of the views of John Gee and others regarding regarding the astronomical content in the Book of Abraham strikes me as highly flawed. Several Latter-day Saint scholars have noted that the astronomical model in the Book of Abraham may relate to ancient geocentric cosmologies. In 1991, Kevin Christensen, drawing upon Nibley's observations on the facsimiles, linked the cosmology in Abraham III to the motion of the stars perceived from Earth and the long-term drift of stars and constellations. Later, John Gee, William J. Hamblin, and Daniel C. Peterson, proposed that the astronomical model that Abraham would use to teach Pharaoh some important spiritual truths makes the most sense when viewed as a type of geocentric model, one that Pharaoh could accept. The Lord seems to have given Abraham more advanced knowledge as well, as J. Ward Moody proposes in his evaluation of the mix of astronomical information present in the book of Abraham. But much of the discussion seems couched in terms of what one observes from the earth, and with principles that could relate well to the geocentric views of the Egyptians, and fulfill the purpose stated by the Lord in Abraham three five for this information. Quote, Abraham, I will show these things unto thee before ye go into Egypt, that ye may declare all these words. End quote. In Abrahamic astronomy, Gee makes the basic case for a geocentric model that Abraham could have used in talking with the Egyptians. Quote Uh, And this is a lengthy, fairly lengthy quote from John Gee. The astronomy in the book of Abraham uses as its point of reference the earth upon which thou standest, Abraham 3, 3, and verses 5 to 7 as well. It mentions various heavenly bodies, such as the stars, Abraham 3, 2, among which is Kolob, Abraham 3, verses 3 to 4, These, uh, among which is Kolob. These provide a fixed backdrop for the heavens. Among the stars are various bodies that move in relation to the fixed backdrop, each of which is called a planet, Abraham 3, 5 and 8, verse 8, or a light, Abraham 3, verses 5 to 7. Though since the sun and moon and certain stars are each also called a planet, we should not think of them necessarily being what we call planets. Each of these planets is associated with uh, quote, its times and seasons in the revelations thereof, end quote, Abraham 3, 4. These lights revolve around something, and that is the fixed reference point, quote, the earth upon which thou standest, end quote, that's Abraham 3, 3 5 to 7, and we're still in the John Gee quote. The book of Abraham thus presents a geocentric astronomy, like almost all ancient astronomies, including ancient Egyptian astronomy. Each heavenly body, with its revolution, is associated with something called a set time, Abraham 3, 6, and 10, or, quote, the reckoning of its time, unquote, which is Abraham 3, 5, which seems to be its revolution around the earth and for the earth its rotation. The greater amount of time is associated with a higher orbit, and thus being, quote, above or greater than that upon which thou standest in point of reckoning, for it moveth in order more slow, This is in order this is in order because it standeth above the earth upon which thou standest. That's end quote Abraham three five, still in the John Gee quote. Uh, The higher orbits are longer and are larger, and take more time to, to, to traverse. Thus the longer the time of revolution, the higher the light is above the earth. The ancient Egyptians associated the idea of encircling something, whether in the sky or on the earth, with controlling it, or, or or governing it, and, and, and the same terms are used for both. Thus, the book of Abraham notes that, quote, there shall be the reckoning of the time of one planet above another, until thou come nigh unto Kolob, which Kolob is set nigh unto the throne of God, to govern all those planets which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest, End quote. Uh, that's Abraham 3.9, still in the John Gee quote, The Egyptians had a similar notion, in which the sun, Ray, was not only a god, but the head of all the gods, and ruled over everything that he encircled. Abraham's astronomy sets the sun, quote, that which is to rule the day, unquote, Abraham 3.5, as greater than the moon, but less than Kolob, which governs the sun. Abraham 3.9. Thus, in the astronomy of the book of Abraham, Kolob, which is the nearest star to God, Abraham 3.6, see also verses 3 and 9 revolves around and thus encircles or controls the sun, which is the head of the Egyptian pantheon. The controversy between Abraham and the Lord shifts from a discussion of heavenly bodies to spiritual beings. This reflects a play on words that Egyptians often use between a star, Ach, and a spirit, Ich, the shift is done by means of comparison. Quote, now if there be two things, one above the other, and the moon above the earth, then it may be that a planet or a star may exist above it, as also if there be two spirits and one shall be more uh, and one shall be more intelligent than the other End quote, that's Abraham three seventeen to eighteen, in an Egyptian context the play on words would strengthen the parallel. End quote. That's ending the quote from John Gee. With an interesting Egyptian word play. The purpose of the astronomical material being given to Abraham becomes apparent. By teaching Pharaoh about the order seen in astronomy, with one star near God governing all others because it is an order most high with the longest time of reckoning, so can the same principle be implied when it comes to souls, with God being higher than all. Using this roundabout astronomical approach to lay a metaphorical foundation, Abraham can help help Pharaoh see that there is a God higher even than the sun, higher than the Egyptian pantheon, and higher than Pharaoh. Speaking such things directly could be seen as an attack on Pharaoh and Egyptian religion, a capital offense, but the astronomical analogy could help Pharaoh learn the principle without getting Abraham killed. Vogel is not impressed. He begins a rather meandering discussion of astronomical issues with this. However, the model they use to interpret Abraham chapter 3 requires the earth to be spherical with the sun, moon, and planets revolving in concentric circles around it, a model that, in fact, dates many centuries after Abraham. Indeed, all but one of the author's examples range from the 3rd century BCE, Greek philosophers, to 14th century CE, Italy, Dante, that's from Vogel, pages 133 to 34. This is an unfortunate misreading of Guy, Hamblin, and Peterson. Their argument obviously, or absolutely, does not require the advanced Ptolemaic version of geocentrism, and in fact is compatible with flat-earth models from ancient Egypt. Vogel's footnote at this point uh, adds another argument or two. Quote, the exception, the alleged one example relied on by Guy, Hamblin, and Peterson not dating to many centuries after Abraham, Is the Egyptian belief that the earth, personified by the god Geb, and sky, personified by the goddess Nut, are separated by Shu, god of air? While Guy et al. state that this concept of the cosmos, quote, goes back at least as far as the Middle Kingdom, and thus to the approximate time of Abraham, end quote, they do not explain that in the Egyptian cosmos the earth is flat, and instead emphasize an Egyptian text which says, Quote, sun disk encircles that which Geb and Nut enclose. Unquote. Uh, quoting from Guy et al., and I saw the stars. Uh, continuing with the vocal, quote, thus they imply that Egyptians believed the sun revolved around the earth. In their description of the first of the four types of geocentricity, they state that the sun, moon, stars, planet. They state that the quote, sun, moon, stars, planets, etc surrounded and encompassed the earth in a single undifferentiated heaven, unquote. In the footnote, they reference the, quote, view of the heavens from the tomb of Seti-1, which clearly shows the earth is flat and the heavens over it. The ancient Egyptians believed the sun, Ra, traveled on a barge at night to emerge in the east the next morning, and not that the sun revolved around the earth. That's page 134, note 42 from Vogel, quote. Vogel seems to assume that a flat Earth model is contrary to a geocentric view, perhaps because he assumes that geocentric must refer to the latest well-known versions of geocentrism with heavenly bodies acting as if connected to revolving spheres moving around a spherical Earth. But more primitive flat Earth models can accurately be described as geocentric. If it is the Sun, literally moving across the sky rather than the Earth rotating on its axis— and if the motion of the stars each night is due to their motion relative to the Earth, we clearly have a geocentric model, regardless of how the sun gets back to its starting point each morning. Vogel chastises Guy, Hamblin, and Peterson for only considering one part of, the, of evidence, one piece of evidence from ancient Egypt. Here, he has not carefully read the article he criticizes. Speaking of the ancient Egyptian views on astronomy. The authors note that, quote, numerous references make it clear that their worldview was fundamentally geocentric, unquote. end quote. Their footnote here cites James P. Allen, James P. Allen's Genesis in Egypt, the Philosophy of Ancient Egyptian Creation Accounts, a work that considers the astronomical implications of 16 Egyptian sources. It has significant evidentiary value in support of the point made in I Saw the Stars, That's the work by Guy et al. I discuss some of the details of that work and some later publications on Egyptian astronomy elsewhere. While Vogel protests the citing of only one reference on ancient Egypt supporting geocentrism, the most appropriate rejoinder is not that the reference cited treats multiple ancient texts, but rather the basic features of the ancient Egyptian model are so widely attested and well known that only one reference is appropriate. Indeed, it is almost common knowledge that the ancient Egyptians believed the sun moved across the sky each day and was reborn in the east the next morning. While language describing the sun moving over the earth is abundant, one can also find many references to the sun encircling the earth, though this need not mean a perfectly circular Ptolemaic orbit. For example, an item of jewelry dating to 1887 to 1878 BC, likely near the time of Abraham, has this inscription, the God of the rising sun grants life and dominion over all that the sun encircles for 1,100,000 years, i.e. eternity, to King Kakapere, or Senwasret Senwaswet II. One of the most familiar aspects of ancient Egypt, the use of a cartouche to encircle the names of royalty, is a symbol related to the sun encircling the earth, from the UCLA Encyclopedia of Egyptology, we read, quote, The cartouche derives from the Egyptian shen ring, a hieroglyphic sign depicting a coil of rope tied at one end, meaning ring, circle, the root s-n, or shen, representing the idea of encircling. Symbolically, the cartouche represents the encircling of the created world by the sun disk, that is, the containment of, quote, all that the sun encircles, end quote. And that's the end of the UCLA quote. Also, having the sun and the stars move around the earth, encircling it, is even more specific than the geocentric argument Guy et al. require for their point regarding geocentric elements in Abraham 3 and its suitability for presentation to the Egyptian court. Simply having the sun move across the sky should be enough. Incidentally, in the above passage about the cartouche, we are again reminded of the part of egyptian etymology reminded of part of the egyptian etymology of shinha involving the root sn or shen exp- uh, involving quote the root sn or Shen, representing the idea of encircling end quote exactly as nibley explains in fact nibley notes that the egyptian term shinha refers to the sun but can also mean one eternal round the name of his important but neglected book Paying attention to Nibley's work would have helped Vogel recognize just how well-grounded, if not well-rounded, the geocentric argument is. Vogel goes on to propose that Joseph Smith and his revelations was just borrowing from the modern cosmology expressed by authors such as Thomas Dick, an argument that is no more reasonable now than when Von Brody proposed it decades ago, and that has been treated by Latter-day Saint defenders. I have responded elsewhere in more detail to Vogel's arguments against the geocentric features in the Book of Abraham proposed by Guy et al. I note that in light of the reverence the Egyptians gave to certain stars, especially the immortal, that is, never setting, circumpolar stars near the pole star in the sacred northern part of the sky, stars that rotated much more slowly than other stars and never set, The Statements in Abraham 3 relating slower-moving stars to the deity and governance of the cosmos actually fit in beautifully with ancient Egyptian mythology. That framework, couched in part with geocentric terminology, would have been a brilliant way for Abraham to engage with the Egyptians in terms they could understand, teaching about astronomy as a stepping stone to teaching spiritual principles aided with the Egyptian wordplay between soul and star that John Gee had discussed stars associated with souls and gods, with governance and glory, with set times and revolutions, with hierarchy and order, all were part of ancient Egyptian concepts and nicely fit the book of Abraham. The ancient astronomy of the book of Abraham, coupled with some extra information the Lord showed Abraham, cannot be dismissed as Joseph merely drawing upon his environment. There's more to understand and discover here but it will most likely come from scholars with expertise in Egyptology and the ancient world, not by the approach Vogel feels is sufficient for managing all that comes from Latter-day Saint treatments of the Book of Abraham. Just another ordinary funerary text? For decades, critics of the Book of Abraham have been asserting that that the Joseph Smith papyri and the facsimiles show that what Joseph had was nothing more than a perfectly ordinary funerary text. Vogel does the same. And because we know that these are ordinary funerary texts, according to Vogel, we can naturally know know what was on the missing portions, obviously just more traditional, ordinary Egyptian funerary materials, which, of course, rules out any hope for a missing scroll theory. And because the facsimiles are perfectly ordinary documents, we can be sure they aren't part of anything unusual, even if there are unusual elements. It all smacks of a circular argument. Latter-day Saint scholars from Nibley on have explained that there are unique elements consistent with the idea that well-known Egyptian vignettes could have been adapted to tell a unique story. Failure to address that possibility and the uniqueness of the facsimiles is another void in Vogel's treatment of his topic. For example, regarding Facsimile one, Mülstein offers these considerations. Quote, Some have considered that it is a typical embalming scene, yet it is at least as different from embalming, embalming scenes as it is similar. The only similarities are that a person is on a lion couch with another person standing nearby. Others would suggest that the closest parallels of this scene are in the temple of Dendera, and that the figure on the couch ought to be associated with Osiris. Recently, John Gee was close, has closely examined these Dendera depictions. He has noted that only one of these has a winged figure in it, somewhat similar to facsimile 1. This scene is accompanied by a text which says that ba- Bastet, an Egyptian goddess not even pictured in the scene, quote, is your protection every day. She commands her messengers to slaughter your enemies, unquote, end quote. Thus, we find a perfect textual sibling for the closest iconographic match to Facsimile One, in that both are about someone who was in danger and received protection. There are other similar texts accompanying similar scenes in Dendera. Other lion couch scenes at the temple include scenes of Anubis and Sons of Horus and the Sons of Horus defending someone from his adversaries, or list Shesmu, a god associated with human sacrifice, as part of the scene. Accompanying texts describe the person on the altar being killed, his confederates being stabbed, and, quote, his flesh being ashes, the evil conspirator destined for the lion couch slash slaughterhouse in order that he will no longer exist, end quote. And we're still in the, in the quote from, from Kerry Milstein. I remain unconvinced that the scenes at Dendera are real parallels to facsimile 1, though they may be. Yet if critics insist on associating the two, they must be willing to associate them with the sacrificial elements of the Dendera scenes, which only corroborate, corroborate Joseph's interpretation of this facsimile. However, still continuing with this quote, it should be noted that facsimile I is unique in many ways. In this scene, the figure is neither in mummified form nor naked, as is the case in most of the supposed parallels. The figure on the couch has two hands raised, in a position that almost certainly denotes a struggle— and while one cannot tell this from the printed facsimile on the original papyrus, it is clear that the priest is standing between the altar and the legs of the person on that altar. In other words, the person on the altar is only part way on, giving the because the priest is occupying the space between both of the victim's legs and the altar. I can imagine no reason for this unless the person on the altar was trying to get off. If the priest were helping him get on the altar, he would not be between his legs. Clearly, this depiction is unique and denotes some kind of movement that is not found in any parallel. Quote. I would also add the simple observation that the stance of Abraham on the altar with one leg forward and two arms up beautifully represents the Egyptian hieroglyph meaning to pray or supplicate, perfectly consistent with the Book of Abraham text that describes Abraham praying to God while on the altar. This is not an ordinary embalming scene. More unanswered questions to consider. Vogel thus leaves unanswered important questions that have long been raised by defenders of Joseph Smith, such as why we, we should think the G-A-E-L was used by Joseph to any degree to produce the book of Abraham or to translate Egyptian. And now we have a series of numbered points. One, when so much of it is not Egyptian. Two, when all but three of the Egyptian characters allegedly translated from JSP 11 are generally not even present therein, 3. when the English translations in the GAEL show a slight relationship with, arguably a dependency from, a few verses in the book of Abraham, but come nowhere close to being useful for translating the text, 4 when the characters allegedly used to create the translation are explicitly said by Joseph on facsimile 2 to not have been translated, 5, when the GAEL shows no involvement of Joseph Smith being entirely in the handwriting of W. W. Phelps apart from a few lines with Warren Parrish, 6, when Joseph's other efforts at translation show no relationship at all with the model Vogel thinks Joseph used, 7. When Joseph showed that he could translate some of the papyrus by revelation, essentially as soon as he received the scrolls, and could see that there was information related to Abraham. So, why would painstaking efforts to create an alphabet first, and then a grammar, be needed to continue with the revealed translation? And 8. When significant material in the GAEL is drawn from other existing materials, such as the Doctrine and Covenants. The complex nature of the GAEL may defy any simple theory for whatever Phelps was doing, whether it was reverse translation, coming up with clues to the pure language, or something related to Shriver's reverse cipher theory, not mentioned at all by Vogel. But the important issue is that drawing upon material from the Doctrine and Covenants raises valid questions about translation of Egyptian being the goal, especially in light of the non-Egyptian material in the characters when questions many questions also remain on other basic topics that should be raised in such a book as vogels including here's now another numbered list one does the historical record about where joseph and the scribes were on various dates fit with the paradigms offered two in any of the revelatory slash translation scenarios joseph had did he do anything that corresponds with vogels model i.e First creating an alphabet with a small group of characters, then developing a grammar, and then working out the translation of characters that generally were not in the alphabet or the grammar. Three, is there any reason anybody would pursue a translation the way Joseph did? Isn't the idea of creating an alphabet before anything is known of a language and then using that to create a grammar and then a translation simply ridiculous and uncharacteristic of how Joseph worked? It's especially bizarre when you realize that the characters allegedly used for the translation are almost entirely absent in the G-A-E-L. Can this really be explained as just trying to impress his peers and brainstorm to come up with a storyline? 4. Does Vogel's model comport with the most basic statement in Joseph's journal about his work with the alphabet, namely, that it was an alphabet to the book of Abraham, as if it were a guide or index, related to existing translated material from the book of Abraham, not an impossible translation key for translating the book of Abraham. This quote is virtually a foundation for Vogel's approach, yet he fails to consider arguments about why Joseph said two rather than four. Five, given that there, that there, that there actually was a sizable collection of materials that were sold after Joseph's death, and apparently were destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire— how can we be sure that nothing related to the book of Abraham could have been in that collection? We are supposed to accept that it would, that it would necessarily just be more perfectly commonplace Egyptian funerary documents. But can we really be confident that materials we, that we don't have were entirely ordinary, especially when the facsimiles are not? Of course, defense of the authenticity of the book of Abraham need not rely on a missing scroll. The key is that translation from whatever source was given through Revelation. That's the end of the list. The omission of so many aspects of the defense of the Book of Abraham leaves Vogel's hypothesis running only on the hurdle free parts of the track. This work does provide a valuable service by pointing to genuine gaps in some of the responses of defenders and by highlighting areas for more scholarship. But it would be unfair to believe that Fogel's polemical objective has been achieved and that the irrationality of the book of Abraham is exposed. Maybe that will be done in a sequel. But for now, I believe that Joseph's abilities to reveal ancient texts by the power of God did not evaporate when he acquired the papyrus scrolls. However, the translation was done. I think the most reasonable approach is to see the GAEL and related documents to be the intellectual derivatives of some early saints seeking to understand more on their own, based on clues from a revealed text. Whatever project was underway, it was aborted quickly, leaving us virtually no explanation about what the Kirtland Egyptian papers were all about. The confusion of mortals puzzling things out on their own should not trump the power of revelation and the ancient text we have been given. Conclusion. From beginning to end, Vogel's approach is informed by a firm belief that Joseph is a fraud who used the G-A-E-L to create a storyline for his so-called translation of the Book of Abraham. That belief, unfortunately, drives him, perhaps subconsciously, to overlook so much that can't be made to fit his theory. He offers a clever hypothesis that becomes a rigid paradigm to explain a few details on the book of Abraham manuscripts, but this paradigm collapses quickly when tested for validity. Vogel frequently treats his hypotheses as settled facts and relies on them repeatedly, not letting the reader know how many assumptions are being made and how much is being left out. For example, he describes how Joseph did such and such in the GAEL, always making Joseph Smith the author and architect stating that as if it were an unassailable fact. He begins with his conclusions taken for granted and moves from there to create the image of overwhelming evidence and victory against the shady apologist. Vogel begins by intoning how he will rely on the purest historical methodology to yield, quote, clear-headed understanding, unquote, with a, quote, balanced, dispassionate analysis, end quote, of the, quote, relevant historical documents, end quote. Just moments after, he has demonstrated mystical mind-reading skills as he tells us what Joseph Smith was thinking when he first saw the papyri. Quote, Smith saw an opportunity to translate an ancient text that would confirm some of his recent doctrinal developments as well as be available for public inspection. End quote. And that's page uh, V.I.I., in the early pages of Vogel, this statement, like most of Vogel's insertions of opinion, is given as if simply a dispassionate academic observation. Again, Vogel seems too close to his own paradigms to distinguish dispassionate dispassionate analysis from his enduring passion for polemics, or to distinguish careful scholarship from personal opinion. Relevant documents may mean documents that I can use to support my views. The book's promise to survey the apologetic arguments for the book of Abraham swiftly devolves to nitpicking a few works where he feels he has good attacks, ignoring many critical evidences and much vital scholarship that would raise uncomfortable questions about his views. In saying this, I am not saying that the evidence pointed to by defenders of the book of Abraham adequately answers all difficult questions, for there is simply so much we don't even we, we don't know, given the paucity of information regarding the translation and the many related documents, including the original scrolls. Many key documents are simply missing, as are explanations from the scribes for what we, for what we do have. Vogel also does point out some valid flaws in old arguments and raises some reasonable points but he does not apply the dispassionate methodology he claims to follow, and does not f- play fairly in his review of the apologetics of the Book of Abraham. Too much is ignored or handled with troubling levels of bias, with the disappointing and misleading treatment of Scheinha being a relevant example. The apologists he engages in battle are hardly represented, except as shadows who offer a few quotes that can be nitpicked, sometimes with good reason, But the meat of their work, the most salient arguments and publications, are generally not to be found. In the end, Vogel stands victorious on a strangely quiet and empty battlefield. Overall, Book of Abraham Apologetics, a review and critique, is an intriguing book, but it doesn't live up to its claims or even its title. There is plenty of critique, but a severe shortage of review. This has been a recording of Book of Abraham Polemics, Dan Vogel's broad critique of the defense of the Book of Abraham by Jeff Lindsay, originally published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, volume 47, 2021, read by Jeff Lindsay. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org. Thank you for listening.